Um, today's sermon is really, really about knowing God. That's the title for the sermon. And I just want to start with a question. Sorry, kids, I don't have a story for you to start with, but please do uh, stay tuned in. The question I want to ask is this from this text is, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? And if you're here today or you're listening in today and you're not a Christian, you're listening in because you're curious about what it means to know God, um, I hope that this message helps clarify that for you today. And, and if you're here today and you've been a Christian for many years and you feel like you deeply know the Lord, I hope it still helps you refocus uh, to the core of what it means to know God and to draw, helps you draw closer to God. If we focus on the words know God in verses three through six in today's text, there are other phrases that can be a substitute for know God. And those phrases are in him or abides in him are used as substitutes for know God. So you can say to know God means to be in God, to abide in God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often use the word abide in my everyday language. And so it doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. And so we see in other translations for this Greek word abide, it's been translated also remain in, live in, be intimate with. So to know God can also be, can also mean to remain in God, to live in God, to be intimate with God. And 1 John 1, 3 even says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And all this points to the undeniable answer to the question, what does it mean to know God? The answer is knowing God means being in relationship with God. And this might sound supremely obvious to many of us, but we so easily misunderstand what it means to know God and to go astray from this truth and to go astray from this idea and truth that knowing God is to be in relationship with God. And there, there are many misunderstandings that we either live in or go back to about knowing God. So let me just point out a few things that knowing God is not primarily about. Knowing God is not primarily about perfection. It's not about following a bunch of rules really well so that God will love us more or to follow those rules really well so that everyone sees how good of a Christian we are. Knowing God is not about power. It's not about having incredible power to heal or to speak in tongues or other spiritual gifts. When the Apostle Paul wrote this very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, he was trying to correct people's misunderstanding that knowing God was a miraculous display of God's power. Knowing God is not primarily about position. It's not just about the glory that God has prepared for us in eternal life. It's not even just about eternal life that he's provided for us. Knowing God is not just about getting into heaven or gaining position for people to envy. Lastly, knowing God, and this is not a comprehensive list, just four Ps that I thought of, uh, knowing God is not primarily about puffed up knowledge. An illustration from my own life, uh, you know, as a pastor, I have to go through an ordination process. And in our denomination, the ordination process is rigorous. You feel like, or at least I felt like, that all three years of information and content that I learned in seminary had to be at the tip of my tongue, ready for any question that someone might ask from that content. And so in preparation for that ordination exam, which is first before a committee, and then if the committee thinks you're okay, they then put you before the presbytery, which you know the presbytery that I was in was like 100 pastors and elders. And they just basically ask you questions that range from theology to church history to sacraments to church polity. Again, anything 
outline the book of Amos or outline the book of Romans or, you know, it could be anything. And the scary thing is when you go before the floor, uh, that's actually the scary thing because the committee is usually very reasonable. But when you go to the floor of presbytery and there's a hundred random pastors and elders that you don't know, you don't really know how they feel that day. You don't know if they're like in a bad mood, they ate something wrong, they got out of bed on the wrong side of the bed and they just want to like stick it to you because they don't like the look of you. And so you never know what question you're going to get on the floor of your ordination exam. And I'm not Bible trivia man. I'm not trivia man of any kind. I'm just not like I don't like Jeopardy because I terrible at Jeopardy. And so I'm always afraid there's going to be some there's so much to know in the Bible, right? Some random Bible trivia question that I'm going to fail at. And so one of the questions I got from in my ordination exam before the floor of the presbytery, this was in Colorado, was what word is not in the book of Esther. And I just like freak out immediately. Oh no, it's a Bible trivia question. I'm going to, I'm not going to know the answer to this. This seems like a crazy question. But then I relax like, oh, I know the answer to this question. It's okay. And then I start smiling internally because it's sort of like a trick question. And I said, I said out loud to the floor, the hundred pastors and elders, I said, there are a lot of words not in the book of Esther. And internally, I'm thinking I could have said a bunch of rude words that are not in the book of Esther, but probably not a good idea in the middle of my ordination exam. And so the answer is the word God is not in the book of Esther. Um, that process of becoming ordained involves having in, stuffed into my brain a knowledge of God that probably at no other time in my life have I ever had um, just right there. And I don't have a photographic memory. I couldn't even, I couldn't say that I remember everything that I had prepared for my ordination exam. But it also led me to this misunderstanding, which is thinking, having knowledge about God, having all of this information and content at the tip of my tongue meant that I knew God, meant that my relationship with God was good. And actually, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Having knowledge about God doesn't mean that you know God. Doesn't mean that you are in relationship with God or have a good relationship with God. I've had the privilege of seeing people come to faith or young in their faith and, and see that they can know God so closely and so personally, even they don't have much knowledge about God. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Knowing God does not have to do primarily with perfection, power, position, or puffed up knowledge. So we've looked at what knowing God is not. So what is it? Coming back to our text again here, particularly in the mindset of the Apostle John, knowing God is about relationship with God. According to the language of John, relationship with God is about remaining in God, abiding with God. And John knew well what that meant. He was considered the one whom Jesus loved. And in John 20, verse 2, uh, we see that described. John had this special closeness with Jesus that he experienced that others didn't. And so in order to remain in God, our vision for what our relationship with God has to be at least as close as what we can have with humans. Our vision for that has to be at least as close as what we can have with, with humans. We should hope and strive for this back and forth relationship with God that is at least as responsive 
as with our closest friend. The closeness you have with God, though, is far more than you realize or feel in your heart. God has established that relationship with you. And so no matter what you feel or experience, God is completely connected with you if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so the adventure of knowing God in our life is about knowing God more deeply and experiencing his presence, experiencing this closeness, this connection with God that he has already brought about. And it's experiencing what it means then to be a representative of him in this world in obedience to him. As with all relationships, there is an up and down to that relationship, an up and down to how close we feel with God. But our hope is always that in the long run of our life of walking with God, of a lifetime relationship with God, that we experience a growing closeness with him. The Apostle John, of, of course, also wrote the Gospel of John, and he did so to describe the life and ministry of Jesus. And one distinct thing about the Gospel of John is that he really focuses in on the last days of Jesus's ministry before he went to the cross. And in that gospel, Jesus himself, John records for us, uses the same language of remaining in Jesus to describe our relationship with him. Jesus says in John 15, verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Remaining in Jesus then means having a life-giving connection to him. A branch is connected to the vine and a vine to the branch. And this is what theologians often describe as union with Christ. And so remaining in Jesus also means dependence on him. I was surprised just as we worshiped. I didn't, I didn't pick anything today um, and I, I didn't lead anything other than coming up here. And as I experienced worship myself today, I was Surprised that in God's providence, um, the elements that were picked picked very well, uh, suited very well with today's passage. Remaining in Jesus means dependence. The branch is dependent on the vine, but the vine is not dependent on the branch. The branches can be cut off if they do not bear fruit. But the branch gets its life and power from the vine. The vine, Jesus, is our nourishment, is our source of life. And if we don't remain in Jesus, in that vine Jesus, we will wither away spiritually. And so that begs the question, how can we remain in Jesus more? How can we live more dependently upon him? And I hope that you continue to ponder and meditate upon that this week and, and, and weeks to come. What does it mean to remain in him? And let me just say some ways in which we can remain in Jesus. And some of them will sound obvious, but are worth saying again. Remaining we can remain in Jesus by hearing God speak. God speaks to us through the words of the Bible, and that is why we are encouraged, and we have been throughout our Christian life, to read God's word for ourselves. God guides us through the Holy Spirit inside of us as we read God's work and words, and he speaks to us. When you read the Bible, do you read it with an expectancy to hear from God? Do you take time to listen to what God might be saying through the Spirit, through scriptures. I remember when I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography, I think some of the things that stand out about Bonhoeffer's life is obviously his boldness um, in his faith, his, his um, emphasis on the community of Christ, 
But one thing that stood out to me from his biography that I was surprised by was really his, his relationship with God and how when he uh, had time in the word, that he came to the word with an expectancy to hear from God, that he believed there was a word from God for him whenever he read God's word. And that should be our expectation too when we read God's word, to ask God to speak and expect God to speak. So we can remain in Jesus by hearing God speak. We can also remain in Jesus by confessing our sin. God guides us again through the Holy Spirit inside of us. And this is why we must seek to confess our sins and our wrongs to God because scripture tells us that unconfessed sin quenches the Holy Spirit inside of us. Quenching the Spirit doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit leaves us. It means our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's guiding is hardened by our unconfessed sin. And again, that's why our church, we confess our sins together on a weekly basis. It helps us remain in Jesus. We can also remain in Jesus by praying without ceasing. God teaches us that we are to pray without ceasing in scriptures. And I think it is an awesome application of what it means to be dependent upon God. I don't think God means that we should be spending all day kneeling before God and not doing anything else. I think what God means is that whatever we may be doing, whatever praise we may have, whatever need we may have, that we bring it to God throughout the day. To pray without ceasing is, is based on an idea that, that we must go before God with humble hearts and to believe that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. A belief that God is our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. A belief that we are far less in control than we think. And so to pray without ceasing can mean this. When you hear that someone is sick, that you, you pause and pray for them, even if it's just for 10 seconds. When you feel yourself struggling with worry, that you pause and pray and bring that worry to God. When you find yourself struggling with lust, that you pause and pray for God to deliver you from temptation. When you find yourself about to have to do something difficult, that you pause and pray for God's strength. When you find yourself thankful for something, to pause and pray thanksgiving to God. When you find yourself celebrating something in life, that you pause and praise God for being the provider of that thing. Praying without ceasing can help you remain in Jesus as you look to him throughout the day. But this passage teaches us even more of what it means to remain in Jesus. We can remain in Jesus, fourthly, by resting on Jesus and his work. John says in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate before the heavenly Father. And the word advocate can mean advocate or representative or friend who goes to court to speak a good word on our behalf, to speak a good word for us before the judge. So you can think of Jesus as the most respected, influential lawyer who goes before the judge to speak a good word for you. Or you can think of Jesus as the most kind and compassionate and empathetic and righteous priest who goes before the judge to speak a good word for you. Jesus speaks for you to the one that he is closest with, the heavenly father. But the father is not a grumpy old man that needs to be convinced to show kindness to us. 
the Father and the Son are one. They are one in heart and in mind and in will. And Jesus speaks for us to the Father who is also for us. Not only is Jesus our advocate who speaks for us to the Father, Jesus is also our propitiation for our sins, which is just a big old theological word that means that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, is the payment of sacrifice for the wrongs that we have done. Our sins deserve justice before God because he is a just God. And the Bible teaches us that the appropriate penalty for our sins is spiritual death. But God loved us too much to leave us in spiritual death. God came into this world fully God, fully man in Jesus Christ so that he could live a perfectly good life and also to go to the cross as an atonement, as a sacrifice for our wrongs and our sins, to be the payment of sacrifice for our wrongs. And I just want to share briefly from the book or movie, whichever one that you've read or watched, Hunger Games, to give us a clearer picture of what it means for Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice. I will assume you've not watched it or read it, but probably most of you have. But in the first book and film of The Hunger Games, the the book takes us to a distant future of the nation of Panem. And Panem consists consists of the capital, who is, and the capital is wealthy um, and influential, but oppressively ruling 12 districts. And the 12 districts are in great poverty. And the people in the capital dress expensively and colorfully. And and while the people in the 12 districts dress poorly, basically, drably, Katniss Everdeen is the main character of the story. She only has a mom and a little sister, Primrose, because her father had passed away. And Katniss is the one who is really the strength of the family, keeping the family together, providing for the family um, as they struggle with poverty because her mom is in so much grief since she lost her husband. In the story of of Hunger Games, every year, boys and girls between the ages of 12 through 18 must take part in the Hunger Games. And the Hunger Games are a televised event where selected children called tributes fight to the death in a vast arena until there is one remaining who will be crowned the winner. So the Hunger Games was a twisted form of entertainment that the capital created as a way to keep the 12 districts under control. The tributes of the Hunger Games are selected by lottery from each district, and someone is sent from the capital to randomly pull names out of a bowl. And the older older you are, the more chance you have of winning this great lottery. And if you're younger, you have less entries into the lottery. And so one one, one boy's name and one girl's name is picked from the bowl from each district. And if your name is picked, you must participate in the Hunger Game as a tribute. It is therefore essentially a death sentence. You're expected to die since there's only going to be one winner out of the 24. Obviously, the younger you are, the less chance you have of winning. What chance does a 12-year-old girl have against an 18-year-old boy in a fight to the death? If your name is pulled out of the bowl, the only chance you have of not participating in the Hunger Games is if someone volunteers to participate in your place. But of course, rarely, if ever, does anyone volunteer to join a fight to the death. So there's a scene in the book and in the movie that during the reaping, which is the lottery, the selection, um, during the reaping of the female tribute in District 12 where the Everdeens live, live, 
Katniss's little 12-year-old sister, Primrose, is selected. And in the movie, we see this close-up of Primrose as her name is called out, and she's in shock. And it's like, like Moses parting the Red Sea, people depart away from her like she's shunned, and she slowly walks her way up to the stage where her name had been pulled. And we hear Katniss cry out, Prim! She's in shock that her little sister, her 12-year-old sister, who she knows will die in the Hunger Games, has been selected. And so she cries out, I volunteer! I volunteer as tribute! And when you, whether you read it or watch it, you just feel the anguish and the love that Katniss has for her sister Primrose. She substitutes herself to what seems like certain death for Primrose to deliver Primrose from having to suffer and die from the oppression and ridicule of the Hunger Games. Again, you can feel that pain and love that Katniss feels for her vulnerable little sister. You can feel the deep love that Katniss has for her sister. And this is really just a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. We are all under a spiritual death sentence because of our own sins, except our names were rightly picked for punishment and death. But Jesus felt great pain and anguish and love for us. He felt this deep love for us so much so that he cries out, I volunteer. I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer to be the sacrifice. I volunteer to die for the one I love. And that is how we know that Jesus is for us. Jesus doesn't just talk a good talk. Jesus goes as our substitute, as our sacrifice for wrongs. This is how we know how great his love is for us. That is why we can rest in Jesus's work. How do we know that he loves us? By the cross. Remain in his love demonstrated by his substitution on the cross for you. The Apostle John reaffirms this truth in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a beautiful truth it is. But let me give you a spoiler alert. And if you have not read or watched Hunger Games yet, I'm sorry, shame on you. You're going to get a spoiler alert. It's kind of obvious anyway. What we don't see in this Hunger Games scene that I described is that Katniss wins the Hunger Games, and the victory she achieves is felt and celebrated and shared by her whole district. Similarly, Jesus was not only our sacrifice, a substitute for our sin. Jesus also lived a perfectly good life for us, conquered death, conquered oppression, and we share and celebrate in his righteousness for us because we are joined to him by faith in him. And that is all we need. Faith in Jesus and his work. Faith in what he has done for us. We don't need to come to Jesus to, to, to put ourselves together by ourselves. We don't need to get our act together before we come to Jesus. We don't need to, we don't need to like be all righteous in our own strength. We just need to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then by faith, Jesus is our vine and we are the branches. Jesus credits Jesus' perfectly good life into our account so that God sees Jesus in us. 
his perfect and beloved son. Jesus takes our sins and gives us his perfect goodness. What a great love it is for us. And that means what's left to do for us is to remain in him, to rest in him. We need to stop trying so hard. I asked my wife once what she thought it meant to remain in Jesus and his love. And she thought out loud and asked out loud, how do our children remain in our love? And she continued to answer her own question and basically said, children don't have to do anything. They just enjoy our love. They just receive it. They just rest in it. What I hope and want for you is to rest in Jesus and his work and his love and to stop trying so hard. Stop doing so much to try to get closer to him. Remain in him. Rest in his work. Rest in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Remain in the fact that he is always for you. Remain in the truth that he took your place, your punishment for your sins. He was your substitute. He was your substitute sacrifice and he was your substitute righteousness. If I were to ask you this question, and there aren't a lot of people to interact with here, but what is the opposite of sin? I think I might have asked this question before, but I'm asking it again. And the Apostle John in 1 John 2 starts with, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. So what is the opposite of sin? In one word, what is the opposite of sin? You might say obedience. You might say virtue. You might say righteousness. I say, no, the opposite of sin is love. And so lastly, we remain in Jesus by loving. That's what we're taught in this passage. Let's just dwell on that for a moment. Today's passage does tell us that if we know God, then we will remain, that we will keep his commandments. If we know God, we will walk as Jesus walked. But the Apostle John brings us back to this very simple truth, this very simple idea, and that is love. In 1 John 2, he goes on to say that if we know God, then we must love our brother and not hate him. In 1 John 4, verse 7, he says it even more beautifully. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, 9 through 10, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Love is not just a feeling. It's not just fluffy, romantic emotions. God's commandments teach us specifically what love looks like. He doesn't leave it vague for us to figure out what love looks like. All sin is relational. And therefore, therefore sin, is always, sin always affects our ability to love one another. Sin is our rebellious running from relationship with God. And so the opposite of that is God's pursuit of us in love. You could say sin is missing the mark of God's standard. And so hitting the mark of God's standard can be summed up by love God and love our neighbor. If we want to remain in Jesus, we can do so by loving. We must love. And as we grow closer to Jesus, as we experience his depth of love for us, so 
the biggest change that can happen in us is simply the way we love, the way we love God and the way we love people. And it's not a comparison game. Don't worry about how you see other people loving. They don't know what your starting point is. They don't know what God needs to work on in your life. And you don't know their hearts. You don't know their starting point. Jesus simply calls you to love more and more compared to yourself. Remain in Jesus and remain in his love by loving. I want to end by just saying this. A vine without branches cannot bear fruit. And in that sense, Jesus is dependent upon us, his branches to bear fruit. Theologically, you could say I said something incorrect because we know God doesn't need us to do anything, but God chooses to use us as his instruments in this world as his hands and feet. So what amazing grace that God chooses to bestow upon us, that he would use broken, sinful creatures. What great love and dignity he shows us by using us in this way. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and he uses us to bear fruit. That is the relational closeness we have with Jesus. We are that connected to him. We might not feel that connected at times, but the objective reality is that if we have put our trust in Jesus, if we have put our faith in Jesus, then we are one with Jesus. We are joined together with Jesus. So I call you again to remain in Jesus, to remain in his love. The greatest treasure we have in this world and beyond is our relationship with God. And it is through our union with Jesus that we have everything. God promises us a lot of things in scriptures. But if all we got out of the gospel was relationship with Jesus, then that is enough. Remain in Jesus. Remain in his love. Let's pray.